Father, this place is all about you. You are the reason we are here, Father. Through your son's work on the cross and in our hearts, we are able to be here. And now, Father, as we walk in the light of Christ, that progress, Father, is, is illuminated by him. He's the lamp to our feet. And through the word, the word before us, Father, we are brought each week to a clearer understanding of how we may please you in that walk. I praise you and I thank you, Father, for the testimonies this morning. Even as we just begin the book of James, we see your work in, in these lives already, and we thank you for that. And as we continue in it now this morning, we continue to rely on the Spirit, on his teaching. The words are spoken in the room, Father, by the mouth of a man, but they are conceived and authored by you, and we ask that in the hearts of those who hear, they would be made real and that they would have their good work. We ask, Father, that all that we say and do here would glorify your name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, turn with me to the book of James, first chapter. We'll pick up about the point where we left off last week, which admittedly was not very far. That was uh, the way it started, but we'll be at verse 5. We'll, we'll continue forward from there. I said last week the book of James is a challenging book because of how it was written, who it was written to, and the time in which it was written. It's probably the most misunderstood book in the New Testament. Of all the books that you could read, I believe it's the one that causes the most angst because it's easy to misunderstand James's purpose. Martin Luther, who's no small man in the history of the church, Martin Luther was uh, one of those people who misunderstood James. He tried to remove James from the canon of Scripture in his day based on a misunderstanding of why James wrote and what he was trying to communicate. When Luther eventually translated the Bible from Latin into the local language of German, he actually took James and moved it to the back of the book, to the appendix, if you will, because he didn't appreciate it. And it was because in his day he was fighting against a works-based gospel, and it seemed to his ear that James was affirming works as a function or as a component of salvation, that works somehow and faith were necessary. And that's not what James taught, and it's perhaps understandable given Luther's time and circumstance that he might have come to that misunderstanding. But James does not teach that works and faith must be combined for salvation. Instead, James presents the importance of faith at work in a Christian's life. And as such, his letter is just incredibly important to the walk of any Christian who hopes to please their Lord as a faithful follower. I want you to consider James's principal audience again, who we understood last week he was writing to. His audience in the day he wrote was largely Jewish the Jewish Christians of the early church. These were men and women who, prior to their faith in the gospel, were raised up under a rigorous, demanding set of rules and regulations that came out of the Mosaic Law. That's the life they knew. And that life was terribly difficult, terribly burdensome. And that harsh life of following rules, of following limitations, as God instituted for the Jewish people, was designed to achieve two outcomes in the lives of the Jewish people in the nation of, of Israel. First, it set them apart. The law, as God instituted it through Moses, instituted a separation for the nation of Israel. They were becoming, by that law, a peculiar people amongst the nations that they were surrounded by. They had unique customs. They were completely separated from the rest of the world. And in separating them, God preserved a line to the Messiah. And he gave rise to the prophets, and through them... God's word. So the separation achieved great things for God's purpose in how he communicated and prepared the world for the Messiah. Now, that law was comprehensive. 
And it was restrictive because through all those regulations, through everything that it presented to the nation of Israel, it created that separation, that uniqueness, and it assured that the Jewish people would always stand out. They still stand out. And interestingly, even among the unorthodox who don't currently as, you know, adhere to the rules of the law, they are still distinct as a people group wherever they live. So that's one reason why God gave them that law. That's one reason why the people of James's day had come out of such a risk of life. But there's a second reason. And the second reason was the law became a tutor, as Paul calls it, or a schoolmaster, which would drive that nation to a specific outcome. Think about what law does. It regulates sin. It promotes morality. It illustrates how sin requires some kind of payment of blood sacrifice to atone. It revealed the holiness of God in the laws of the the rules and the regulations of the law. But ultimately, ultimately, when you see all of that played out in your daily life, you're left with only one conclusion as a Jew, if you understood the law properly. And what you came to was a frustration. Inevitably, you came to the frustration that I can't do it. There's too much. It's too demanding. It's too exacting. It has no no forgiveness. There's no second chance. If I break one law, I've broken them all, as James says later in this letter. And therefore, I come looking to God for a solution to the problem of my inability to keep his standard. It's a schoolmaster. It drives me, Paul says, to Christ, to a Messiah, to something God does for me because I can't do it myself. Now, by the time James wrote this letter, Jewish Christians had come to understand that by faith in the Messiah, they had met the requirements of the law. By faith in Christ, his work was credited to them. And so they were no longer under the law, as Paul says in Romans. They were no longer bound by the Mosaic law because they had met its terms through Christ. They were now under grace. And as such, they were able to live without the rules and the restrictions of the Mosaic law. But have you ever had a, 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 heard the story of a teenager, for example, who was in a home that was very restrictive? And as soon as they got out from underneath all those restrictions, what do they typically do? What do they often do? They go wild. That's what college was all about, right? Unfortunately for, for many. It's that natural fleshly reaction to the removal of rules and restrictions, which in most cases are there for our benefit. We tend to go with the pendulum swing, right, to the other extreme for a while. And that was one of the concerns James had in looking at how the early church was forming in this Jewish context. Jews who realized they were no longer under the law. Well, now, what are my guidelines? What are my guardrails? And they would often stray off into all kinds of unhealthy behavior as a result. They had bad habits. They made bad assumptions about what God wanted out of them. And James writes a letter full of principles that are concerned about that kind of licentiousness or laziness or self-indulgence that came upon a group of people who previously were under the thumb of the law at all times. Now, having said all that, That does not mean it doesn't have applicability for you and I, who may never have been under the law, but nevertheless are still going to fight and and wrestle with a lot of the same fleshly desires that this group of Christians evidently was dealing with. So it's still very applicable to us. But this fact explains why James is so often seen in this letter connecting faith with works. That explains why he was so interested in the intersection between faith and And works because he's taking it to a crowd who now in faith is still lacking a full and clear understanding of how that faith is supposed to live out in works. What are the what are the works of the Christian faith? They knew what they were for the Jewish faith. That's for sure. But what is it for the Christian faith? Do I go to the temple and sacrifice? No. 
Do I keep the dietary restrictions? Only if you want to. Well, then what do I do? James is given to the church so that we would understand what faith lived out looks like. And in the beginning chapters we started last week, he dealt with one issue. Each chapter has its own theme, if you will. And the chapter that begins the letter is the theme of trials, tests. And we ended at verse 5. I'm going to repeat verse 5 and then move forward from there as we look next at what James says on this issue of trials. Verse 5. He says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything. From the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. We have to pause there because there's something important being established in those verses. Remember from last week when we looked at verse 5 as part of the opening of this letter, we learned that the wisdom here that he's talking about, that James mentions, is the knowledge that we need to face a trial. James isn't speaking here about just generally wisdom about any circumstance. He's not saying that every time we ask God for some element of knowledge, God is obligated to answer that prayer. He is speaking only about when we are in a trial, facing some uncertainty. We don't know how to face the test successfully. When we're in that situation, we can go to God in prayer or through the word, through study of his word, and come to God with the question, how would you have me face this trial? And that wisdom God will always give you. There is no exceptions to that. But it's in that context. You know, there's a story of Satan once going before God, Asking him a question, wanting knowledge. And he said to God, you made a world, God, that isn't fair. He said, you made it so that people have to struggle every day. They have to fight against their natural urges. They deal with all kinds of losses each and every day. Disasters, grief, catastrophes of one kind or another. And yet they still have to worship you and adore you. But meanwhile, whenever they do get into trouble, when they fight with each other, when they, when they go to arguments with one another, cheat each other, In the end, they always blame me. I'm always the one who's supposedly behind it all. It's all my fault. And yes, God, I know I'm evil, but can't you do something to help me spread the blame around here a little bit? And so God created lawyers. (laughs) Now, for, for Satan, that's his answer. But for the rest of us, God is going to answer the question of what do I do, Lord, with this test? That's an answer you'll always get. What a wonderful promise that is. Just we've said this last week, so I certainly don't need to cover it again, but I can't help but come back to that thought every week. We will receive from God the answers to the tests he gives us. The tests are open book. When he brings us a trial, we can face that trial with his knowledge. But then James adds a stipulation, and that's where we we come to something new this week. James adds a stipulation on how we must approach God as we ask for the knowledge to face a test. We have to ask in faith. Now, this is the first connection point you'll see in the letter, among many to come, where James proposes there is a link between faith and action. And he'll draw this link, as you may know if you've studied the letter already. He'll do this many times. Here's the first of those times. When we act to seek God's wisdom, we must act in accordance with faith. Now, let's examine what he's saying here for a minute, because, as I said at the outset, there's a lot of misunderstanding when it comes to the book of James. Now, as in the text I read here, I'm reading out of the NASB, the New American Standard. Unfortunately, it doesn't render the Greek properly here. The word here is diakrinomenos. It literally is doubting. 
But it doesn't mean it in the same way that we typically think of the word, certainly not in the way it's conveyed through the NASB. The word literally means to discern or to uh, to judge between two things. Uh, and, and when you take it in the full context of what James is saying in that verse, and he add to it the, the picture of the surf, the waves that roll in and roll out and roll in and roll out, you put that together and you have an image here that is different than simply someone who has a doubt about you know, whether God can answer it or whether he will answer it or you know, does he care what I think. I mean, that's not what James is talking about. The King James Bible actually gets it right in this case. King James 1.6, But let him ask in faith, Nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven back by the wind and tossed. The wavering is the point. Someone who is vacillating. So the connection here is between the movement of the sea in and out and someone's attitude with respect to where they go for that knowledge. Whether they seek God's knowledge or not, whether they go somewhere else. And James goes on to describe this person as someone who is driven and tossed by the wind. What kind of person are we talking about here? I mean, if we could picture this person in our mind, who does this today? Well, first, the person is unstable, as he uses the term, as James calls him, unstable, wavering. Now, in the context of what he teaches here, then, someone who is wavering or unstable is someone who changes their mind for who they go to for advice or where they seek their wisdom or understanding or where they take their advice from. So in the midst of a trial, remember, that's all in the context of trials. You're in a trial. If we think back to the last time we were facing one of those difficult moments where the trial was was difficult, we didn't know how to respond to it. Our emotions were taking over. We weren't sure what we were supposed to do or how we were supposed to be a good Christian in this moment. So we go to God for help. We pray. We ask. What we get is maybe nothing, at least at first, or we get a small, quiet sense of something. But we're not sure. Is that just me? Is that God? So then what do we do? Uh, okay, let me see what else I've got. Where else do I go? Tried that avenue. Now what? The person who wavers, who's unstable in this kind of situation, is someone who cannot rely on God exclusively for these answers, for this wisdom, for their direction. And the reliance that says God will answer and I don't need to go elsewhere for my answers is the test that God is putting before you. It is a part of the trial. And secondly, the reliance that lets us continue to seek godly wisdom in the face of those circumstances rather than getting impatient and going elsewhere, that is the spiritual maturing process that God is at work in doing in our life. Let me give you a story to illustrate what I'm talking about. There's a Christian man, let's say, who is experiencing trial in his life. In this case, he's the father of a teenage son. Well, there's a trial all by itself, right? And his son, in this case, has entered a rebellious period in his life, as some do. The son is uh, running in the wrong crowd. He's uh, struggling at school. He's starting to show disrespect for his parents and for adults everywhere. And this father is a relatively young Christian, so he's not very mature in his Christian walk yet. He's a babe in Christ. And as a result, he feels unprepared. He he doesn't know how to face this trial in a godly way. Now, one day his son has a run-in with the police. And that results in a court date. And there's the possibility that at the end of this trial, at the end of this court proceeding, he's going to receive maybe months of community service, maybe a fine, maybe probation. There's penalties here. Now, the father is in that moment and he's wondering... How is he to deal with his son's situation? What's the godly response to that situation? So someone tells him, you know, the book of James says, go to the Lord. 
Seek wisdom from him. He'll show you how to face this trial. And so the man does that. He, he goes to prayer and he goes into the study of the word. And in the course of that time, he senses God telling him that he is to let his son face the decision of the court. But in his heart, he's not sure that's the thing he wants to do. He's not sure that's what he wants for his son. He's worried about what that means for his son. He, he really wishes he could just make it all go away. And then while he's wondering, he runs into a friend, a good meaning friend who hears of the situation. And he says, you know, I know that judge. He's a friend of mine. I bet we could get this matter settled out of court. If you want, I'll go talk to him, see if maybe we can settle it quietly. Now the father is wavering. He feels like God's told him to let it go forward. But then this seems like an answer to prayer in itself, doesn't it? You know, the chance to see somebody get off the hook. Well, the father goes back to prayer again, asks God, well, what would you have me do with this? Would you have me go and, and let my friend get my son out of trouble? He doesn't hear anything this time. So he takes his friend up on the offer. And the judge dismisses the charge and the son escapes the penalty. I wonder what happened to that son later. More importantly, why didn't the father in this story hear from God when he asked about which option to follow? Why didn't he hear from God again? Because James says he wavered. Well, because he had already heard. From God, He already knew what God's will was. What he did, though, was be unstable. He wavered. One minute the sea was in, listening to God. Next minute it's rolling back out. And to that kind of immature Christian, God says, why do you expect to hear anything from God? As a parent, I mean, if you can make a comparison between God, our Father, and what we experience as parents on earth, what if you had a child who came to you for advice, and every time they came to you and you gave them the right advice, they turned and listened to somebody else instead? How long before you say, you know what, you don't care what I think anyway. You may do it in love, you may do it wishing that they'd know the truth, but eventually you realize it's not working anyway. That's a sad situation, isn't it? That's the kind of person James is talking about. He's talking about the unstable doubting of somebody who's so immature that though they've heard from God, or even if they haven't yet, they're still not patient enough to wait on that answer. He says, when we approach God for the wisdom to face a trial, we must approach boldly. We approach the throne boldly, to be sure, but also in faith. Now, remember, he's not talking about how to become a Christian. This is not a book of how to be saved. This is a book written to believers. So when he says come in faith, he's not saying come with a knowledge of the gospel. That's that's already there. That's that's a prerequisite. What he's saying is come with a faith to receive what God gives you. As the right answer and then rest on that answer. Be stable in that answer. The father was instructed by God to let his son receive the due penalty because suffering the consequences of his actions was the best way to rescue this son from his destructive pattern. That was godly wisdom offered to the man, but he didn't accept it. The father wavered. And James goes a step further, which I find even more convicting, more troubling. James says such a person will be unstable in all their ways. In other words, it's a characteristic of their personality, of their spiritual immaturity. It's going to show up in other ways. It's not as though this person is going to have a life that's ship shape and then all of a sudden in one moment of their life they can't be trusted to listen to God. It's probably going to mark them in many ways. It's a troubling pattern. It's something we're supposed to grow beyond. He will be double-minded. The word in Greek literally means double-souled. And I think that's the right word because you know what it reflects? The fact that we have divisions in our allegiance. We may be all Christ's in faith, but in our fleshly walk, we're still one foot in the world, one foot with God. We're double-souled in that sense. 
And that's a man who's looking for trouble because ultimately he's not directed by God. I think in terms of examples out of Scripture, I think of Lot. I think Lot may have been an example of someone who was in this kind of a life when he was in Sodom, in the gate, which means a member of the ruling class of Sodom, a member of the government of that city. And yet, Peter tells us he was a righteous man. He was troubled by what he saw, and yet he was still a part of it. The man was double-souled, I think, and is an example to all of us of what that can lead to. Now, there is a corollary, I think, that's present in, these t- in the text I've read. By the, a corollary, I mean, if it's true that those who will not rest in God's wisdom are unstable and wavering, then the reverse is also true. When we grow in our spiritual maturity, we will learn to rely on God's direction, both from what we see in the study of his word and from our prayer life. We will be a stable person. And what that means, what that looks like is we will have a level of spiritual maturity that will allow us to be equipped for trials, whatever comes along, big, small, day-to-day, monumental, whichever, and we'll roll with the punches. Instead of us rolling in and out of of a will with God and, and, and understanding His ways, we'll be stable in His will and we'll roll with the punches. All the while accepting and maybe even at times understanding God's purposes in those trials. Remember, understanding him is not, a, is not a guarantee. God doesn't assure us we'll understand what he's doing, but he assures us we'll have the wisdom to face it. That's the mark of spiritual maturity. But the mark of spiritual immaturity is when we're not patient. We're not waiting on the Lord. We're not seeking his answers. By the way, for the one who is unstable, for the one who wavers with respect to God's wisdom, let me tell you, they have plenty of options. I mean, if you want other answers than the ones you get from God, you've got Dr. Phil, you've got Red Book, You've got Cosmo, you've got your neighbors, you've got your friends and your family, you've got your horoscope. I mean, it goes on and on, right? If you want answers to direct you, there is a world of choices, and they're worldly, to be sure. But none are a replacement for God's own voice. Even the ones that are good. I mean, there are Christian authors writing how to live through us, this and that kind of circumstance. And, and there are Christian friends who try to give you godly counsel. Those aren't bad sources necessarily, but they are not a replacement for God's wisdom. And in fact, if I was to give advice, I would say, know God's wisdom and then consider everything else in light of that wisdom. Not the other way around. Rest in him. Don't go seeking a hundred answers rather than the one he offers. Well, from that now, James moves to a third principle, if you're counting, in the way we face trials. The third principle is our position in the world, our position in the world. So verse nine, he says, but the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation because like flowering grass, he will pass away for the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. Well, so too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Have you ever thought that the wealth or the status of a person is a trial or a test in itself. When we're busy talking about the ways God may put trials or tests in our path to, to measure our degree of spiritual maturity, did you realize how much money you have is an ever-present test from God? And it doesn't matter which end of the financial spectrum you're on. That's what's so compelling about this. That's what's so fascinating about this. God has placed us wherever we are in terms of our financial position as he deemed appropriate, as he chose to. But it's a test for all of us, wherever we are. 
And James addresses both ends of that spectrum here when he tells us how we are to react to that particular test of life. First, he says to the brother of, I love the euphemism, very polite way of saying it, to the brother of humble circumstances. I mean, let's put a word to it. Poor. Right? Poor in some sense. To that person, he describes it as an inward test. The test is inward. And when we say poor here, let's understand, we're talking about someone who lives on the low end of whatever the spectrum is for your given circumstance or for your given community. I've got to tell you, the poorest person in this room is richer than probably 90% of the people on earth. But still, relative to your community, you may be poor. There's certainly that kind of person in, in, in the world around us and probably in this room. At some level of measure, you're less than people around you. That's the brother he's talking about here, the brother or the sister in this case, of humble circumstances. That person has an inward test. And the test is, the trial is, how do you understand your circumstances and maintain your proper attitude even though you're poor? How do you understand them? What's the right way to face that trial? How do you show spiritual maturity while you're contending with needs you can't meet? How do you, how do you, how do you portray spiritual maturity when you don't have enough food? How do you portray spiritual maturity when you don't have the toys that your neighbors have for their kids? How do you have spiritual maturity when your neighbors are able to go on vacations and you can't? How do you deal with what it means to be at the low end of some spectrum and it's obvious to you and everyone around you where you are? That's an inward test. How does that person show Christ under those circumstances? If you if you were to listen to all the smiley face prosperity gospel nonsense that's out there these days, the answer they would give to this question, how do you face your poverty, is don't. They say you don't face your poverty. You deal with it. You go to God. You say, I demand, God, that you would honor all these, quote, promises and make me rich. It's all nonsense. More than nonsense, it's unbiblical. It's contrary to the Bible. Did James say that? Did you see any hint that he said, those of you who are humble in circumstances, well, get with it, guys. You need to be doing this, that, and the other. You need to get that money that you deserve. No, he doesn't say anything like that because that would not be what Christ would teach either. He teaches the opposite. He says, take satisfaction. He uses the word glory. He says, glory in the spiritual riches that you have in the coming kingdom. Which you earn, by the way, with spiritual maturity. Set your mind, as Paul says in Colossians 3, 2, set your mind on things above, not on the things of this earth. That's the response. That's why it's an inward test. Can you do that? While the neighbors are enjoying their new car and yours is falling apart, or uh, while you are in need of something basic like medical care and everyone else is taking their care for granted, can, can you look at that situation and glory in the fact that your riches aren't found in this earth anyway? That even those who have them are not receiving anything eternal in this time? It's all temporary. Can you be happy with that? Truly? Happy in the sense of knowing what God has prepared is better? That's the test. That's an inward trial. I have to tell you that if, if someone lives under those circumstances, every day they wake up, there's their test in Christ. So that someone would look upon them and say, gosh, you know, my house is filled with stuff and my garage is filled with stuff and you don't seem to have anything and you seem a lot happier than I am. What's the difference? I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you about Christ. You see, it can be useful. It can be, it can be an open door. And if nothing else... It's the attitude that conveys spiritual maturity and earns us reward in heaven. How sad it would be that someone could live their life here absent wealth in this life, but deal with it so poorly that they earn no treasure in heaven either. I mean, 
Wouldn't that be the worst of all circumstances? When I say earn, you understand, I'm not saying an earning of your salvation. That's not possible. What I'm saying is that to those who serve God in a way that pleases him now, he holds out reward in the kingdom to come as his as his incentive for good service now. And I don't pretend to know all of what that looks like. We'll talk a little bit about it here this morning in a minute. But it is real. There is eternal reward offered to the believer who serves God well with what he gives them here. How ironic if we forgo that because we're too busy worrying about what we don't have here. Now, to the other side of the spectrum, to the brother who is of means, who has wealth, the test is similar, but now it's an outward test. It's not as much an inward test for this person. It's more of an outward test. James says, don't glory, or another way to say it is, don't celebrate your earthly wealth. Find your satisfaction instead, he says, in remaining humble, before the, before the Lord. Glory in your humiliation. It's similar to what David said in the Psalms. In Psalm 51, 3, David says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Even as king of Israel, with all that God gave that man at times, he could still say, at all times, I can see myself the way God sees me, which is a sinner saved by grace and no more. That humility for anyone who is of means, who has wealth, should be your first concern. Here again, it's on a spectrum. I doubt many people think they're wealthy. It's interesting to me how often you would ask somebody, well, do you consider yourself rich? How rarely you hear anybody say that. To the man who makes $200,000 a year, no, I'm not rich. Why? Because his boss makes half a million. To the one who has a million dollars in the bank, oh, I'm not rich because according to his financial planner, he needs five million if he's going to retire comfortably. There's always someone with more, right? There's always someone with more. There's only a couple of people in the world who could probably say there's no one with more. There's always more. And as a result, it's easy for us to forget how often we're the one that he's talking about here. That our outward test is underway, is active and and underway in our life. People are watching us and our Christian witness as someone of means is on display. You know, it's interesting to me that how often riches and humility are opposites. How often they don't go together in the lives of people we meet. And here's why, and there's a spiritual dimension to this. It's not just the fact that rich people are snobby or something like that. There's a spiritual dimension. Money is a means to independence, isn't it? With money, I can be my own person. I can do my own thing. I can live as if there's no God. Because the appearance of money or the fact of money in my life can lead me to conclude I'm not dependent on God anymore. Which is no, not true, of course, but it can lead us to think that. It brings us to the same mistake that Adam and woman made in the garden. To be like God. To think that we can live independent of God. That's the problem. That's a spiritual problem of money. We follow our own flesh and we follow our pride as far as our money will take us. If we're not careful. So when God grants someone wealth, and that's where it comes from, by the way. Solomon was wealthy because God granted it. No less are we that way. If we have wealth, it's because God granted it. Folks, that is a serious test of spiritual maturity. Look at the verses I just read. He talked about both ends of the spectrum. Who got the most words? The rich guy. It's a much harder test, I would argue. Not that they both have, don't have their challenges, but in the bigger scheme of things, when God grants someone wealth, it's a serious test. Because the question then becomes, are we going to forego the independence that our wealth offers us? Are we willing to live a life that's still dependent on God, that still respects his will in our life, and doesn't 
get taken away by the fact that at any moment I can run from my problems or I can buy them off. How many people really face a trial of life when they have a lot of money? Would you face trials in life the way most people do if you had a lot of money? And yet, by getting around them through the wealth that you might have had, you miss the opportunity to pass a test and grow in spiritual maturity and earn eternal treasure. So having all that earthly treasure puts your eternal treasure potentially at risk because of how it lets you escape the trials that may come upon you for the sake of your, ben- of your benefit, of your spiritual maturity. It takes a mature Christian who's wealthy to not let it get in the way of the development of their spiritual maturity. Be careful what you wish for. How often do you think Christians pass these tests? Maybe from your experience or from what you've seen. Well, consider, for one, how long they last. You can have a really great 20 years and still fail the test in your 21st year, right? These tests don't stop. That's an impediment to passing them right there. That's what makes them challenging. You're always dealing with money until you reach a point in your spiritual maturity where you just don't care about it anymore. The happiest people I've ever met are the ones who don't know how much money they have and not because they have too much to count. It seems that our perspective of money is the chief tool that the Lord uses to develop our spiritual maturity. A chief tool. So, we live with eyes for eternity, knowing there is nothing in this world that lasts into eternity except our degree of spiritual maturity. Did you know that? There is nothing you take from this world into the next, not even your physical body, except your degree of spiritual maturity. I don't think enough Christians understand that. I think we have been led to believe somewhere in the past that at the point of our glorification, when we are raised into a new body, that it's like we're all reset to zero again. Whatever whatever kind of person we were in this world, it's all just made perfect in that moment. Yes, our bodies are perfect and we are sinless, but that doesn't say anything about the degree of our spiritual maturity. If that thought were true, then none of this would make any sense. What eternal value is there in seeking spiritual maturity now If it all just goes away when I get raised anyway and I'll start at zero and we're all equal, what's the point then? That's not the testimony of Scripture. The testimony of Scripture is he who is faithful with a little will be faithful with much, Christ says. And that's in respect to how we will do what we do for him now, becoming a measure of how trustworthy we are in serving him later. So if there's one thing and only one thing that moves with us from this world to the kingdom, it's the degree of spiritual maturity we obtain while we're here now. What a shame if we waste this time and then we end up in the next kingdom and then realize too late. I'm stuck at a level of spiritual maturity that makes me only partially useful to God in this kingdom. And as a result, I'm given only a a small fraction of the responsibility that others are receiving. I don't mean to make it sound negative. It's heaven. I understand it's it's where we want to be. But don't make it sound like a Sunday school pop-up book either. There's realness to it. There's there's a reality to it that Scripture talks about. And this is it. In verse 11, James compares the world's wealth wealth and and all that men can glory in in this world to the beauty of flowering grass. I mean, you get the point immediately if you live in South Texas. Doesn't take long for the sun to come up and things start to wilt. And that's that's the perception you're supposed to have, that we're supposed to have about what we have in this world. Now, to finish today, we go to one more lesson on trials. James in verse 12 says, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So his turn here is significant. He turns his teaching to what the future holds for the man or woman who will face trials and these tests successfully. 
So what do you have in store for you, for me, if we are successful, by and large, in facing the tests and trials God brings us? What are we working for here? Well, first, he says, the person that endures or perseveres through these trials, that person has the potential to receive a blessed life. Blessed means spiritually happy and content. That's what it means. Spiritually happy and content. Look at the irony here. Stress, trials, tests, difficult things in life come from God. Why? To bring us peace. To bring us a contented, spiritually happy life. Does that make sense? Not to the world. And that's why we know it's from God. With God's wisdom, it's the peace that passes understanding. It's that sense of, I don't know why I'm happy about this. I don't even know why I'm not more angry and whatever. But for some reason, that's just not how I feel right now. That's what God promises to the one who faces it successfully. Think how that works. If you don't face it successfully, if you give in to your flesh, if you let your emotions drive what you do, if you let the world's wisdom drive your reaction... You're not blessed in this sense. You will still have the angst. You will still have the stress. It will still be unpleasant. Isn't that interesting? Give it to God, follow his wisdom, and understand that it is a test, and face it that way, and you're blessed. That's the promise. Try it. Secondly, once that person is approved, James says, they will receive a reward. The word approved, dokaimos in the Greek, what it literally means is, tested. Isn't that great? It all comes together. Once the person is tested and the, in, the intent of the word or the implication of the word is they passed the test, right? Once they've faced it and passed it, succeeded in doing the godly thing in the face of it, then they receive a reward. Now, he calls it here the crown of life, the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let's understand what he's saying here, because this is very important to understanding why we need to pass these tests. The crown here is Stephanos in the Greek. That's where my name comes from, Stephen. It's a wreath. Literally, the word is wreath. It was the word used in James' day to describe the wreaths that were made and awarded to people who participated in games, Olympian games, for example. So let's say a race. Somebody wins a race. They come to the end of the race. What they won, their award, was this wreath. A crown. That was their sign. Now, what did that say? What did that signify? As they would walk around with their crown, what they were signifying was, I earned this. Look what I did. It was a trophy. It said, look what I did. But that was its purpose. That's why we awarded them. It reflected something we earned through our performance. Now, as soon as I say that, we have to understand that it means this crown can't have anything to do with salvation, can it? We think of crown of life And if we don't know better, it sounds euphemistic for salvation, right? If someone were to tell you crown of life means salvation, you'd probably go with it at first, right? It seems sensible until until you look at the word in the Greek and then understand it in its context. And you have to back away from that. And you have to say, no, 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 that, that doesn't seem to be what James is talking about at all. Because I'll tell you definitively, the Bible, the scriptures never, never use the word Stephanos at any point anywhere in scripture to describe what we have in Christ, what our salvation represents. You never see Stephanos and salvation ever linked in Scripture because it would make no sense to do so. We would be implying you earned your salvation. And we certainly know the Scriptures don't teach that. There's five times in Scripture 
where you see crowns or wreaths, Stephanos, mentioned as an award for believers who excel in serving the Lord through trials. And I don't plan to go through them all today for the sake of time, but I'll go through one as an example. These crowns are, to put it simply, measures of our faithful service. They're like badges. God does award to us some measure, something that reflects what we do for him here. And it is awarded at the end. They are presented, James says, did you notice, when we are approved, when the test is over. Meaning when our life is over. When the series of tests have been completed and we die or we are raptured, whichever happens first, we will face the Lord and we come to something Paul refers to in in a letter he wrote to the Corinthian church as the judgment seat of Christ. A moment reserved only for believers. A moment when our Lord receives us and in the process of receiving us, recognizes us for what we did in the time we served him here. And that recognition comes in the form of crowns. Now, I'm not pretending to know what that scene looks like. I I don't have anything more than scripture offers. So I'm not saying it's a literal crown. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. Maybe it's a pin. Maybe it's a trophy. I just know that there's some way in which in that moment we're recognized. And if it makes any sense at all, knowing the word in Greek, it means something we wear or we carry with us or we can uh, demonstrate to the people in that time what we did for Christ. Like, I guess, rank maybe or something like that. There'll be some way in which it lives on in that time. It's for anyone who perseveres through the end of a trial, tests and trials that are brought upon those who love God. Jesus asks us to be committed to facing these tests so that he has opportunity to reward us. And we're talking here about a test of spiritual maturity that demonstrates and proves our love for him. That's why he refers to it as those who love him. Remember how he puts it in, in John, in First John? Those who love me are the ones who keep my commandments. So John says if those who love him will keep his commandments. There's a, there's a faith plus action kind of relationship. It's faith first. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. But having faith, now the issue is what are you doing with it? And to those who do something with it, there's reward. Jesus makes a similar promise to a church in Smyrna when he writes letters to them in the book of Revelation that uh, John records. Now, Smyrna was a city that was facing particularly strong persecution, or was about to, and their chief protagonist was the unbelieving Jews in the local synagogue. So, as Jews came to faith and followed the way, the Christ that they had come to know in Jesus, the Jews who didn't know him back in the synagogue were persecuting this group. That was the situation in Smyrna. And Jesus says it this way to that church in Revelation 2.8. He says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, and listen to this, but you are rich. Same message James gives to the humble brother. I know your poverty, but you're rich. And, the bla- and he says, And I know the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. And then he says this, he says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil's about to cast some of you into prison. Why? So that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Now look at what he adds at the end. He says, be faithful until death. And I will give you the crown of life. The same crown James is talking about. Facing a trial successfully results in this crown. Now look what he asked them to do. 
Face it until death. That was the test. That was what they had to do to be approved, to pass the test. Short of staying with their confession in the face of that persecution, if they backed off their confession, if they ran away from that tribulation, were they less a Christian? Absolutely not. If there were such a thing as losing your salvation and that's all it took, well, who could be saved? We all have our bad days. Now, the problem here is not your salvation. The problem here is your spiritual maturity and the reward that comes for succeeding in those tests. Don't sacrifice that award. Don't let a moment of this life stand in the way of an eternal reward. And I find it particularly interesting that they were poor. To the one who is approved, the crown of life is held out there. Folks, our walk with Jesus is a walk by faith, but it is also a walk of faithfulness. And you can have a walk of faith that's not very faithful because it doesn't result in the kind of lived out life that demonstrates that faith. And that's James's concern to know that God expects a certain response to our faith. Father, we are thankful, as always, for the conviction of your word. I know I am. Because so, Father, it's easy to talk the talk and to even put on the airs of a Christian and and do all the Christian things. It's so hard, Father, to walk the walk when the tests come. And yet, Father, that's where the rewards lie, as you tell us this morning in your word. We are measured by how we face the trials and, and tests that you put before us, for it's in those opportunities that you know who we are and what we're made of. And you ask, Father, that we would face them successfully by relying on your wisdom. And you ask us, Father, that we would succeed in those tests so that you would receive glory and you hold out opportunity for reward. You are a good and gracious Father. And we thank you, Lord, that you have revealed the the answers to these tests in your wisdom, in your word this morning and in our prayer life. We ask, Father, that you would continue to call us into study and into prayer so that we might avail ourselves of that knowledge. And we ask, Father, that we would put all of this to work this week. We ask, Father, that uh, if it could be possible, you would send us trials and tests because you tell us that we are to seek them. Because, Father, in the facing of them, we grow and we do desire to grow. So, Father, we cannot ask for them without also asking that you would give us the wisdom to face them properly. Let us see how we can mature through them and witness to others by them. Father, continue to grow our little fellowship We meet here, Father, because we love you and we want to serve you, and we ask that you would honor that by growing us and giving us greater opportunity to serve. And bring us back to finish the book of James in the weeks to come. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.